Hey, y'all. Welcome back to Stories from the Influencer Economy. This is Ryan Williams. Each week, I speak to a different creator, entrepreneur, or maker launching the next big thing online and in media. My guest for episode number 66 this week is Scott Belsky. Scott is an entrepreneur and author, and he's well-known for creating the online portfolio company Behance, which was acquired by Adobe, in addition to writing and authoring the book Making Ideas Happen. I highly recommend that you stick around for the end of this episode. We talk about, at great depth, how creative people can make their ideas turn into actions, actually talk about how to create an action list to execute your ideas, and how dreamers and doers should find each other. So I want to thank Scott for coming on again. also wanted to remind everyone, September 22nd is the big day for my Apple Store event. I'm bringing the influencer economy to the Apple Store Santa Monica for a live show interviewing a local entrepreneur, Scott Duddleson, who founded a company called Swagbucks many years ago in Los Angeles. The focus is how to launch and build a startup in LA. Simple as is, really excited. I've always wanted to have an event at the Apple Store, so I'm really fired up that uh, it's going on. How to launch a startup in Los Angeles is the thesis. We'll be going out for drinks afterwards. I will buy you a cocktail or a beer if you show up. It would be a fun night out in the town. It's a Tuesday night on the 22nd at the Apple Store Santa Monica for the Influencer Economy show in person. Hope to see you there. And without further ado, Scott Belsky for episode 66. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to Stories from the Influencer Economy. Here with Scott Belsky. Scott, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. So you've done a lot of work and you're not even 40 yet. So I feel like you have the secret team of people that are doing all your work for you. Like how, how do you do all this work without driving yourself crazy? Sure. Well, I mean, uh, you, you guessed it. Um, you know, Behance, we have an incredible team here of folks that I've worked with for many years now who run the technology side of our business, the Behance platform, uh, which is sort of like a LinkedIn for the creative community. Uh, and we also have Nate on you, which is run by a very passionate team of folks who host the conference and run the, uh, you know, the think tank and the blog, um, of, uh, insights on execution and kind of the missing curriculum for creatives that they never got in design school. As for the book, uh, that's my own, you know, labor of love and it's a lot of labor as you know. Um, but it's, uh, it's been, you know, it's been quite a trip, let me tell you. And I hope, hopefully we're still in the early innings of what you're doing. Yes. Yeah, I, I'm. I'm hopefully agreeing with publishing as well as podcasting. I still think as a creative society, we're evolving, and people think that they have the model figured out, especially with podcasting now, because it's so accessible to everyone. But in the end, people that are professional are starting to get paid more. And it, one of your core beliefs with Behance was to help people like figure out their careers and monetize. Yeah. Like, and you went to Harvard as a HBS Business School. Which is also interesting because there's no school for creative people. Most people do it themselves. And also, I think that business school is overrated. You know, I think that um, that the uh, it's great for if you want to climb the ranks of a you know a, of an investment bank or management consulting firm or you know big Fortune 500 maybe. But for uh, you know for the execution of ideas and for building yourself as a business. You know, some of the most important skills like sales and being able to, you know, you're selling customers and audience and investors and advertisers and whatever, I mean, whatever you need to do to build your own brand and to, you know, monetize your content, 
a lot of this stuff you just learn through uh, through the hustle. And so there's no real online repository of this type of information. I don't think so. You know, I think I think the biggest thing that we can get you know from resources online is how to consider ourselves and run ourselves as businesses. You know, we're all we are all businesses with marketing departments, you know, in some ways we're, you know, we all have to have an accounting department. Otherwise we go belly up. We are independent businesses as people. And we should consider ourselves that way when it comes to the opportunity cost of our time, where we focus, the quality of product we put out there. I mean, I'm sure these are things you and all your listeners are thinking about is how do we make sure that, you know, I, I, I have a level of scarcity to my product. People appreciate it. I have a feedback loop with my customers, all of these things. And so do you consider yourself a creative person? I do. You know, to me, creativity is just a genuine interest combined with initiative, you know, and, and that's always how I've been operating is I'm trying to find things that I'm genuinely interested in and pairing it with a shit ton of initiative, you know, roll up my sleeves and try to get something done. So that's, to me, that's creativity. Uh, wh- where did you grow up? I grew up outside of Boston okay. in a town called Newton. Uh, or more specifically, Wabin. I know Newton. I went to high school with someone from Newton. Okay, there you go. So everyone knows someone from Newton. Uh, and, uh, and grew up there, loved it, you know, moved to, uh, to New York. I feel like New York is an incredibly diverse, you know, fun place to be, you know, and especially in the creative industry with the intersection of design and media and marketing and technology. And there's just a lot of interesting things going on in New York. And I also think New York has some advantages over Silicon Valley, you know, when it comes to building technology companies. So it's been great to be here. I've been building, working on stuff related to Behance, the creative industry for over a decade. And how big is Behance now as a company? So our team now here is about uh, 70 people. Um, And, and, uh, you know, we're now part of the broader Adobe organization. Um, But really Behance is its own intact team. Um, and with its own designers, its own engineers, and it's its own little culture, you know, and I think that it's a good thing to preserve that. Also, in some ways, we've influenced the broader Adobe culture at this point, and I think you're starting to see some of the, uh, the product of that, um, but it's exciting, you know, it's, we, we, we felt like we wanted to kind of come in and sort of secretly change the company a little bit, too, so it's, uh, it's been a fun uh, couple of years so far. So in your book, one of your many principles is about finding a good team. Yeah. And you feel like a lot of us have ideas and people consistently, like I'm in LA, a lot of startups are beginning here and everyone has an idea for an app. Yeah. But your, your part of your theory and thesis is that it's all about execution and the team and the people to help you fulfill your idea. Cause we all have them. And so why, why that part of the process was that something that was fascinating to you? The part of just like the team building and the elements of leadership and, I think a lot of people think that the best idea wins or the first idea has an advantage and that's just not always the case. Yeah. So I think, you know, I almost think it's never the case. I feel like there's no such thing as idea meritocracy, unfortunately. I mean, it would be so great if the best idea had the best chance of seeing the light of day, but that's not the case. Um, Ideas don't happen by accident, you know, and, and uh, they, they happen through another series of other forces, you know, a big, a big one of which is the team. Um, starting with the, whether or not the team sticks together long enough to execute a single idea. Creative teams are known to disband very quickly. You know, people move on to other fascinations, the new fast and cool shiny object very quickly. People get emotional and get frustrated with each other. Uh, creative teams are up against the odds in that respect. So 
building a team that defies the odds, you know, there's a lot that goes into that. It's hiring the right ratio of doomer, doers and dreamers, uh, uh, empowering what I like to call the immune system at different times. So the doers, you know, 95% of the time should be killing off all new ideas just to keep you on track and make sure you ship something. And every now and then, though, you need to sort of um, you know, suppress the immune system, so to speak, and empower the dreamers to introduce something new to the body to take hold. That's sort of like the organ transplant, if you will. And that's, a, that's an important part of the chemistry of a, an effective team. And there are many more things that we need to think about in that area. So we all have ideas, and oftentimes people launch apps or products that are overbaked and they have a lot of features, and they don't do one thing really well. Like if you're yeah. in an organization, like I feel like we love to go to startups and start companies because we have these grandiose visions. Like, how do you well, step in as a leader and hone that? Well, first of all, I mean, let's talk about specifically, you know, this nature of millions of apps and all that stuff. Um, I always encourage entrepreneurs that I meet to make something that the world needs or, or the way something that needs to exist. Maybe not the world needs it, but it just needs to exist. You know, even if it's some small friction point in your life that you struggle with every day and you're like, damn it, you know, it just would be so much easier if X. Well, that's something that needs to exist, you right. know, and you want to kind of birth it. But knowing the difference between a feature and a, and a business and I think that's one of the biggest mistakes a lot of entrepreneurs make is they think of something so cool and interesting and then they launch it and it's amazing, but it doesn't, it's not a business. Mm -hmm. And in a very frothy funding environment, like we're in right now, uh, it's sometimes it's even worse because you get the signal that it is a business because you're able to raise money for it. And then you realize that you hire all these people and you commit so much of your life to something and you still end up with nothing because no one will give you more money when it's time comes to grow to the next stage. And so there's just this, there's this pragmatic sense of does this newly need to exist and uh, you know, it doesn't have legs to stand on even when no one else gives a damn and no one's going to give me any money. Is there a way to bootstrap this to support it incrementally? These are important things that you need to do before you jump into a new project. And so one of your quotes in your book is brainstorming should start with a question and a goal of capturing something specific, relevant and actionable. Yep. And I, I believe you're at the school of thought that artistic and entrepreneurship thinking are very similar yeah. and they have a lot of overlaps. That's a lot of your thesis. Like how do you, if you're an artist or you're an entrepreneur with a big dream, how do you actually just dial it back and, and focus on one thing to do well? Well, I think it's, I like to call that the creatives compromise and it's a, uh, it's a strange phenomenon because in some ways we're compromising a very aspect of ourselves that we're most proud of which is our ability to generate more and more ideas and more and more energy alongside those ideas whenever we want it. And, uh, and you have to almost compromise part of that essence of yourself in order to focus on fewer ideas longer and also, you know, really get into the grind. There's something about people that, you know, relish the sweat, you know, it's the, it's the perspiration component that is required to push something into existence. You are up against headwinds, many, many headwinds. And I, I think that it's, uh, you know, I, I like to look for people also as an investor in companies now, I, you know, I like to have people who are up for that challenge. That's a different thing than coming up with new ideas. That's for sure. And you talk about the inspiration for the 99U conference is the, is it the Edison quote or yep. 1% is, is inspiration? inspiration. Yeah, what, what's yeah, that quote? And 
Yeah, sorry, I, just, I talked over you. Okay, sorry. Now I'll say it again. No, so the, the you asked about the the um, inspiration for the conference, and uh, you know, in some ways, we wanted ninety nine U to be the antithesis of TED, where TED is all about ideas. Ninety nine is about execution, and the, the origin of it was that famous quote by Thomas Edison: "Genius is one percent inspiration, ninety nine percent perspiration." And so we wanted to focus exclusively on the perspiration slash execution part. And so we have people come and speak, and we don't even let them talk about where their ideas came from. So it's not about the idea, it's about making it. Exactly. Which so also so often, you know, in the tech community especially, but broader people think that having these big ideas are brilliant, but they don't actually get them done. Yep. And we under we almost undervalue that to a degree where it's like if you make headlines or buzz with a company, that's in some ways validating, even if you haven't made money or you haven't been successful and you haven't built something sustainable. Right. I, I think that we can't, if you optimize for the headlines, you know, you will, um, you will optimize yourself into the ground. Uh, it's, and you really have to build something sustainable that you're proud of, that's intact, that you know, has its own culture and its own spirit. Um, and that's just, you know, it's, it's, uh, that's, that takes the team coming together and, you know, committing themselves to something. Um, so I think that, uh, you know, those are, those are parts of the parts of the makeup of that team. But I, I, I agree with you, you know, it's, we get too, too fascinated and too much in love with ideas themselves. Um, and, uh, you know, that's, and that's why I like to almost declare war against, excess creativity you know once you have something you are interested in as you said you find the actionable element do something you know push some ball forward every day there's a great quote you actually just reminded me of from uh from Eero, the uh or hero dreams of sushi the netflix movie have you seen that yep where he talks about you find your one life goal and you become a master at it and then you spend every day dedicated to becoming great at that one thing to become the best at it in the world I think that's right. I think that's uh, that's sort of like the ten thousand hour philosophy, and you know, a lot of other rubrics for that. Um, but I think that's uh, that's a big part of it. So, for getting specifically with your background, yeah, you do a, a, quite a few different things that, on the surface, seem very complex. And I was joking at the beginning. I don't know how you do all this without driving yourself crazy. And I imagine you'd, you're not married. You don't have kids. You don't have any friends because there's no time <laughs> for any of that. Um, but how how were you able to get Behance up to a certain level and then 99U up to a level, get the book written? If we're talking yeah. about doing one thing and mastering it or you know, trying to contain our creative process? It's a good question. You know, it's funny because I, I always have felt like our mission is very, very specific and has never changed. It's to organize and empower the creative world. And we decided that we would do this through whatever medium we could. And so I like to say we're a mission-centric and medium-agnostic business. And uh, we'll use the medium of conferences or books or paper products or technology platforms to get the, get the, get the mission accomplished. Uh, and then, so then it comes to finding the needs and the opportunities in the market. So we felt like there was no conference that you know, just focused on the execution of the ideas. And so we founded it. Now, a big part of this, though, is building the bench strength and the team to support these things. And as the leader, effectively delegating and trusting the people that I work with 
to execute something that is sometimes 10% off the vision that I had, but is more of their, you know, it's, it's, they feel more ownership of it because it's more aligned with their vision. And I think that's a big part of it. You know, I'm, one thing I'm really not is a perfectionist. I, uh, I, I obviously strive for perfection. And I also always strive for the little things that will, that will make the biggest difference. Those are like the fine details that I think will be truly distinguishing. And I obsess over those, but I'm not a perfectionist. Like I don't, you know, try to get everything to be perfect. I don't swoop in last minute and micromanage. I don't think anyone who works with me would tell you I do that. So getting into what you first said about the the medium or just trying to, you have a message, I'm paraphrasing, but you, you articulated yeah. something. Is it, was it the message you're talking about? Or the... Yeah, like mission-centric, medium agnostic. So you, you essentially have the same vision. There's a guy named Paul Jarvis who right. I had on the podcast who spoke at 99U, and he is a online course. He's made hundreds of thousands of dollars about freelancing. He has a podcast about freelancing books, and he talks about the secret is repurposing your content and doing it in new and novel ways, but it's the same yeah. philosophy where he talks about the mission. And he still is the same person in different mediums, but they manifest and grow outside of what the other medium is just because they're separate. And here's the thing. I mean, it, what it's also doing besides economizing our own energy is it's also capitalizing on the way humans are, which is we like familiarity. We want consistency. We want to see the same message across different mediums. We want to have a company that serves us in a more holistic fashion where, you know, we're struggling with this and they're helping me with the conference, they're helping me with the technology, and they're helping me with the book. I think there's some desire, you know, for that sort of 360-degree business. But in a lot of ways, you're talking about how to cultivate your own I, – I don't like the term personal brand. I think that's yeah. too generic. But you're talking that's about that's like – it's consistency, right? It's like me as a business person, I have a book, I have a consulting business, I have a podcast. As we move towards not working traditional jobs for 10, even five years now, right. all our business development lies on us. All of our accounting lies on us. And so if and you listen, I told you that you should start developing technology for other companies to do that. That might be too far from the secret, you know, from what your, what your real core talent is. But if I told you that there's a television show launching that is around the same topic, you know, you might be like, Oh, that's perfect. And you might suddenly become a television personality too. So it's, it's, it's consistency, but, it, but with a, a dose of like opportunistic openness. Right. Because you have to figure out opportunistic openness, meaning I'm, I'm available, right. Cause you have right. to be accessible to new ideas. Yeah. And the modern day is like, it's changing so quickly that you can't rest on the laurels that you've done one thing well because someone's going to come in and compete and take the market. So that was interesting what you just said about 99U, how you sort of assessed the landscape and you realized there wasn't a conference for that category. And TED is all about ideas worth spreading. And what's interesting about TED is that it's almost become a franchise and nothing personal against the TED people, but you can do a TEDx about anything now. And with you all, like, what's the model of the conference and how often is it with frequency? Yeah, so, so far, we've really tried to keep it small. Um, and I mean, it's a thousand people, so I guess it's not so small, but it's one conference once a year at Lincoln Center. We put all of our energy and effort around making it a perfect curated experience, extremely well organized. You know, people who come to 99U say it's like 
the most organized conference they've ever been to because we have 150 volunteers all with the same t-shirt all trained to like help make sure you have an incredible experience so we're proud of that it's like an experiential design challenge for us and we've resisted the urge to have more conferences in more places we just don't have the team to support it and um and also we feel like we can spread the content very effectively via via video where we have millions of people who watch these talks so why would we need to scale the the overhead right so it's you don't have to be there in person right i mean in person it's a whole other experience because you're meeting the people it's also a community but you're right to get the content and the benefit of it you certainly don't need to be there well this day and age you need to go to conferences i think to build relationships because the content can be consumed anywhere you don't have to go to south by southwest and even sit in one conference panel that's exactly right Right, you go there to see your friends, especially or... with Periscope. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. People are periscoping their live experiences, and you can really be anywhere you want to be in real time. Did you invest in Twitter? Uh, I mean, in Periscope. Yeah, or, or just in, in either. Yeah, so Periscope, uh, Periscope was a was a project that I got involved with in the early stages, and as a, both a product advisor and eventually an investor. So Periscope was ultimately purchased by Twitter. And now I'm staying involved as a as a product fellow, you know, advisor for the Periscope team. Oh, that's cool. So it's product, your passion. Yeah, it's a product is my passion, um, and uh, you know, and I, and you know, and it's just it's sort of my learning curve is steepest, you know, in working with new technologies that accomplish interesting problems. And Periscope was one of those examples where I was like, wow, this is going to be a really cool project, and I have a lot to learn from it. So when you invest in companies or advise companies that mostly from you see a problem you think is really interesting and needs solving? Yeah, that's usually what it is. And, um, you know, oftentimes it's the company who sees the problem and they're pitching it to me. Sometimes it's I see the problem and try to find a team that's seen something somewhat similar and see if we're aligned enough to work together or not. And because um, I just think that uh, that's fun to me. I mean, that's also, I think I'm also, it's like something I'm good at. I'm good at working with a team, helping them, in the early stages of the execution and being very practical about what can and can't be accomplished. And, um, you know, it's one of the most frustrating things with investors is when they're not operators, when they don't know or remember how hard it was to actually get something done. Uh, and it's so easy to go in and be like, Oh, you should try this and then do this. And maybe if this doesn't work, do this. And it's like, wow, you just basically generalize and wrote off what I would have to spend the next two years of my life doing. Like, who are you to say that it's that easy? <laughs> Nothing worse than like someone generalizing your life's work and like asking, contextualizing it with something that they know nothing about. I totally understand what that feels like. <laughs> exactly. Right, right. We all do. So, so that's, I think, the unique role of someone who's a, a product-minded, um, you know, experienced leader-building teams doing investing. So why did you go to business school then if this is – did all this came out obviously because you're creative – but why business school was the opportunity to go to Harvard? Yeah, it's a good question. You know, I, um, so the honest answer is, so this is back in 2004, 2005. And I, I feel like I knew what I wanted to do in the creative industry. I, or I knew I wanted to be in the creative industry. I knew I had the idea for Behance already. And I actually had already met uh, a freelancer who ended up working with me full time and then eventually became my co-founder. And, uh, but I also needed a hedge. Like I kind of wanted to hedge myself a little bit. I didn't realize 
I didn't know so much about the technology space and I needed a lot, I had a lot to learn. And so I needed almost like a couple of years of really trying to go for it, but I felt like I still wanted a backup plan. And it's sort of a weakness. You know, I think it actually set me back a little bit. I ended up having to kind of make the decision to either drop out or be a horrible student um, to be able to focus on the business and give it the time and attention it required. Um, and I, I feel like that's one of the mistakes a lot of entrepreneurs make is they hedge themselves so much they never actually give it the full go. And I was, I really feel like for a year there, you know, I was on like anti-nausea medication. I was in such like a bad state, burning the candle on, you know, on both ends and in the middle, right? I mean, it was just like not sustainable at all. But luckily I was in my 20s and I was like, I just figured I wouldn't sleep for a year basically, you know? Um, but then I had to really, you know, make the decision and I ended up choosing the business. And, and, um, and so I didn't have to actually drop out, but I lived in New York and worked on it full time and basically got some credits somehow to, to graduate. To build the company. Yeah. That was Behance. Mm-hmm. Oh, no way. That's yeah. incredible. So you, t- you somehow convinced this esteemed old school establishment. This is right. like 10 years ago, right? So they probably weren't even. Yeah. This, in as much uh, as they- you know, the, the career office called me and asked me if I was sick. So I was the only one in my class that hadn't dropped the resume. Um, and it's 900 people. So I really probably should not have been there in retrospect at the time. But I, I met great people. You know, it's hard to regret anything that ends up being a good experience. So did you end up graduating and then start the company upon leaving? Well, I mean, I started the company in basically a year and a half before graduating. So when I graduated, I was like, you know, get back to work. Um, took a day off to walk in the procession and that's it. That was it. You got like the formal process of graduating through through the system, and, and yeah, then, I actually got a diploma somehow, some way. Is it in your office on the wall or not at all? No, it's not, it didn't make the wall. But <laughs> do you feel like you fight like a narrative sometimes? Because I always read these venture capitalists that they have such disdain for business school, and they say, "Oh, I want someone who like drops out or is passionate," and they have these you know like what? narratives in their mind, like what a good entrepreneur is. Yeah, it's listen. There's one, one thing I've learned is that there's no playbook for this stuff. Mm-hmm. And the funniest thing is that everyone tries to write a playbook, and everyone subscribes to a playbook. Every venture capitalist will either say, "Oh, I only hire people who can code," or "I only hire people who are designers," or "I only hire people who didn't go to business school," or "I only have people who dropped out of college." And you know what? A lot of these, you know, these these beliefs are based on past successes that they've had that they then ascribed as the new rules. And what they forget is that the only success that can happen is one that breaks the rules and purposefully deviates from what is known and already discovered and already accomplished. So it just makes no freaking sense. And I always try to, whenever I start to, you know, drop into pattern recognition and, uh, and feel like I've learned so much that now I can play the playbook again, I realize I'm basically replaying the playbook and nothing ever extraordinary is going to be achieved through ordinary means. So you're more practical, like you're more hands-on, like in your like real life, this is how you create and make. I try to be, and I also try to remind myself that any, any prejudice I have of people because of where they went to school or didn't go to school or where they worked or didn't work or whatever, I'm, I'm falling into the norm. Right. Like everyone else that's already judging yeah, we're. I mean, the, the ultimate the ultimate tool for a lazy leader is a resume, 
because it just, you know, lets me just be hire them based on past stuff. Versus what they are making now. Yeah. Versus like what their genuine interests are, you know, whether they have a history of taking initiative and what's interesting them or not. And those are the things that actually tell you whether this person is going to likely succeed or not. Are they genuinely interested in something that overlaps with what you're working on? Do they have a history of taking initiative and what's interesting to them? If yes, then give them, you know, get out of their way um, and, and bring them on your team. Uh, and I, you know, I never asked people who I hired where they went to college, what their GPA was, you know, I just, just wasn't interesting to me. So, and you're talking about potentially hiring people that do this on their own versus having a company force them to do this. Cause if do it yourself model 99, U, what I'm talking about with the influencer economy, it's people just making it themselves because there's no company edict coming down. It's like they want yeah. to do X. So they make it happen. But there also are entrepreneurs. You know, I'm, I've now been working in Adobe for two years. You know, and Adobe's a big company. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, I have the same sort of mantra and philosophy when I'm greenlighting projects internally and I'm advocating for new ideas. And, uh, you know, there's more, there's different headwinds to outmaneuver in a big company versus starting something from scratch. But they're, they're headwinds all the same. Right. So it doesn't matter where you are, but as long as you're... It does. And, and when people say, oh, you know, it's so hard to make a new idea happen in a big company, I'm like, well, try doing it without a big company. I mean, you're going to find it just as hard, if not more so. And so are, do you work in your same offices at Behance that you did yep. pre-acquisition? Mm-hmm. So you didn't have to move to a campus or go to office no. in Silicon Valley? No, we're still, uh, we're still in, our, in our office. And, you know, and we're actually moving offices soon, but it will still be our office. So. And one interesting thing I liked about your book was you talk about the action method. Yep. Everything's a project, which I think that I talk to a lot of people on the show or people that listen to the audio, the, the podcast mm-hmm. that are like blocked entrepreneurs and they're blocked creatives. Mm-hmm. It's, just, it's as if they can't get it done. And then in some ways it affects their personal life because they feel like they can't get to this level. And it's just the process that they don't have. Can you take us into a bit more about the action method? Yeah, sure. So the action method was this um, you know, this methodology based on what I observed some of those productive, creative people in the team and teams in the world doing. Uh, and I found that while everyone had their own somewhat neurotic, something oftentimes uh, very highly customized project management system or process that they used, they all had this bias towards action, um, which meant that they were relentlessly focused on capturing things that started with verbs. You know, they always tended to their back burner things that weren't actionable yet, but may someday be. And they basically declared bankruptcy on references. You know, they didn't bother spending time filing things away, taking notes of non-actionable things, because they realized they could barely get through their action steps every day, yet alone anything else. And so they started to, uh, you know, to live and work in a certain way based on this approach. Like, for example, measuring the value of meetings and action steps. If you leave a meeting without anything it starts with a verb. You shouldn't have been there. It was too expensive. Um, how do you make sure you have a culture of capturing action where if someone is talking to you and they say they're going to do something, but you don't see them write anything down, can you call them on it and say, hey, did you capture that? Because you know it's not going to be done unless it was captured. So these are just some things we can think about and keep in mind uh, to live a more kind of actionable uh, life. I like it. I uh... You should, 
talked to Michael Lewis and Bill James of baseball stats with Moneyball. This is like the the Moneyball of business where it's things that you couldn't really quantify. And then you're saying, okay, this is actually how you could consider this data to be relevant. Because the perception of someone not taking notes is usually the problem you would have, right? Most people are like, oh, they're not taking notes. They're not interested. But you're saying actually the note taking isn't the interest level. It's the, can we get this done? Because these aren't, this doesn't, this conversation never happened if there's no way to hold someone accountable. Exactly. Okay. Well, cool. Well, I'm a, I'm going to wrap up. I have a, one more question for you. Sure. Um, so I always asked people that are investors uh, this question is what is the best way to get an introduction to you if I have an idea or I'm listening to this or in general, I think that you'd invest in my company, just anyone out there. Yeah. Well, um, you know, I'm, I'm always happy when people reach out to me, you know, and I think that it's a, it's, I mean, it's a privilege actually to get to see so many different projects and things that people are working on and, you know, and be able to pick things to work with. Right. So it's amazing. Um, I, you know, I have, I, I actually did like a one pager that I put on my website recently because someone asked me to of like what kinds of businesses I'm interested in. So I actually made like a little kind of sketched out diagram of the things that are interesting to me. And it's helpful when people position their business, keeping that in mind, because then at least I can latch onto it more quickly. And, um, and then otherwise, you know, setting a deck, like setting something to look at, oftentimes it's some opaque description. And then it's like, Oh, I want to have a call. And it's like, Oh, I don't have time to have all these calls with people for things I don't even know I'm interested in. But if you can send me something that's like a deck and also it gives me a sense of your design sensibility and, uh, and you know, how you feel this product should work and why it needs to exist. Then I get, you know, I get sucked in pretty quickly. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah, yeah. And then as far as, uh, you get referrals through other investors and other entrepreneurs? Sure. You know, people, you know, people oftentimes say you should meet with Scott or this might be interesting to Scott and he might be able to help with something. Um, so that's always, that's always nice as well. And I do the same thing for others where I think there's a really good match. Um, and I'm easy to reach, you know, my, uh, my, uh, you know, I'm Scott Belsky on Twitter, you know, scottbelsky.com, easy to find, easy to reach. One of the, so I have like about, I have 20 rough principles for the influencer economy. Yeah, I've I very similar approach to your book. I've researched and talked to a lot of smart people and sure. broken down how they've built out, out their models and their careers. And accessibility is a big component. I agree. Being reachable and mentoring and paying it forward, where yeah. like you know where I've been and I've been where you've been, and that that's not an undervalued metric that you you can't ignore. I mean, when I have something interesting and I write something, I just put it up online. You know, I I feel like sharing is the new networking. If someone shares something with you that you're interested in that influences the way that you work or you're doing your business, you're going to have more respect for that person. And it's like, I don't have to even meet you to know that we see eye to eye. Exactly. And if you have more respect for that person, you might even invite that person to be on your podcast and yeah. then that person gets exposure and it's uh, you know, it's great. So it's like, you know, this is the paid for thing. And this is, this is why I love this business. And I love what all of us are making and thinking about and dreaming up and executing on. It's, it's, um, you know, this is a, and that's why I wanted to talk to you. I mean, I think that the content that we're sharing uh, is is lifting. It's the tide that lifts all boats, and uh, you know, it, it will be good for the industries we're in, and, and you know, for the general population of people that benefit from what we're doing. Like, it's not the winner take all mentality. If you no, succeed, if if ninety nine U does well, influencer economy does well, anyone 
that's in our class of thinking. Everyone wins, and uh, there's enough money to go around. Exactly. Well, cool. That's a great note to end on. Thanks uh, for having me. The fact that you just referred to your business in relation to my business is like the preferred exit because <laughs> then I could just drop the mic and say, yeah, this really successful entrepreneur, you know, contextualized my company and my idea through his. So <laughs> thank you for that. Pleasure. And uh, w- w- so it's uh, scottbelsky.com. Is that your website? Yeah, scottbelsky.com, Scott Belsky on Twitter, and scott.belsky.com. And then, oh, that's great. I love that. And uh, And then 99U is the event website for seeing, we can see content from all the yeah, past. com is really where all the content, you know, that we're generating is, is displayed in the videos and stuff like that. And then for those of you that are designers, you know, I encourage you to showcase your work on Behance, get the feedback and the, uh, the attribution you deserve. Cool. Okay. Thank you. Thanks, Ryan. All right. That was a good one. Scott Belsky was a phenomenal guest. Super insightful guy. I like how we uh, talk about doers and dreamers and incrementalists. And it's interesting because he, and I asked him this because he does so much. Like he's a writer, he's a founder, he's an investor, advisor, but he's figured it out. And I think the way to prioritize, at least for my own business, my goals are what's going to give me the highest return? Like what's the priority to give the best return? Because I don't want to be an incrementalist where I'm doing a lot of things okay. And that's when I read his book that really jumped out was... I'm more of a dreamer and I have to partner with doers and for the, the book itself, you know, I'm partnering with people to help me write the book. I'm, I have a data scientist who's helping me with my podcast analytics. I have people that are, they're partnering with me across the board to edit the show because I need people to help keep me on task and to help me execute. And so hearing Scott and reading his book, it really jumped out at me. The, I was being an incrementalist and I had way too much time on my, hands devoted to other projects that weren't going to move the needle for me or they the the ROI whether it's money or relationships or opportunities from my business weren't going anywhere and the book is the priority so it helped me reading the book i definitely recommend it to segment and prioritize all my initiatives because you can get swallowed up so easily like most of us if we don't have a boss like myself i have my own company what moves the needle for me is what is the priority. And I was definitely getting overcome with a lot of anxieties around, well, I want to do a conference and I want to do an event and I want to do my podcast and I want to build another podcast. And I was making all these reasons to not do things. So I just stopped investing in stuff that I wasn't hundred percent on board with. And the book is the priority. I'm seven chapters deep. The podcast is episode 66. I'm rebranding the show very soon, most likely calling it the Rhino podcast turning the website into an influencer economy school. So now I'm having classes you can take online. So I'm looking for partners and charter members for the school. So if you are interested in taking a class on branding or how to publish and write your own book, I'll be having classes. And if I can get enough people to buy the classes, I will make the courses themselves. So I'm really transitioning right now and things are moving very quickly. The Apple store event is something, uh, again, I partner with a, a bigger venue for rather than trying to book my own space. So so really the incrementalist thing was resonating with me because I didn't want to be that. And I felt like I was sort of becoming one, if not already had become one. Because when you are on your own, you just you can lose priorities. So this one was a fantastic conversation for myself. I hope you got as much from it as I did. Um, but anyway, love uh, that you all listening to the show so much. 
Big shout out to John Williams, who's an avid listener. He uh, texts me, he's, he's my father, when he listens to the show. And I think he knows more about me because of the podcast than my family does because they're not avid listeners like he is. So, uh, And we used to listen to this guy, Paul Harvey, in Des Moines, Iowa, when I grew up. And he used to do these segments about, now you know the rest of the story. And we like listened to this guy every day on the way to school for, for many years. And now he's listening to me on his earbuds at a coffee shop, which is crazy to think about. So, yeah, good day was the Paul Harvey line of choice. So, anyway, I'm gracious, as always, that you would put this into your earbuds, in your car, or on your workout. If you have any thoughts, hit me up, Ryan, at InfluencerEconomy.com about the Apple event, about the book. I'll be giving out chapters, like I mentioned, well in advance. So I'm already seeding those out to some friends that are helping me with the editing process. So cannot wait to get the book out there. Cannot wait to launch the website to be an or relaunch it to be an education. The Influencer Economy School is what I'm calling it. And then the Rhino Show. That's what's coming up next, if the, if, if, if the logos look good. But uh, I'm sure you, you'll know about those as soon as they pop out. So yeah, without further ado, I'm uh, heading over with John Williams, with Kathy Williams, Julia Williams, who's now two and a half, two, 22 months and a half month. My daughter is saying, Apple, hello, up, down, please. Thank you, not as much as I'd like. Uh, but anyway, heading over there with Catherine as well for some chicken in the pot to Duke Zebert's. Probably going to get some matzo ball soup on top of it. And thank you for listening. <laughs> <laughs> 